Well, good morning. His mercies are new every morning. Amen. I don't know about you, but I rely on God's daily mercies. I am great in great need of God's daily mercy. We don't, because of uh, COVID and, you know, kind of a condensed service, we don't have the praise and prayer and announcement time that we usually do. Um, but I'm just going to sneak a few in there since I'm up here anyway, right? But um, next week, the Montanas will be on vacation, so I won't be here. Uh, the, pulpit, the pulpit will be filled by none other than Sam. Sam, did you know that next week you're preaching? So uh, I'm sure he would appreciate your prayers for that um, as well. Also, I would just like to thank the body for um, the memorial tree that I received for the death of my father. It was a spruce, a blue spruce, and I planted it in view of my window where I sit many, many hours at my office. So I appreciate that. And yes, every time I see it, it reminds me of my dad. So thank you so much for that gift. Um, and then the tentative plan for services is to meet outdoors next week. And right now we're just kind of experimenting with the first Sunday of every month to meet indoors, um, to, to mix it up a little bit, and then weather permitting, we'll meet outdoors. So that would be the plan, but as you know, you got to, when it gets close to Sunday, you got to stick close to your uh, emails to find out what, what the latest is. And we, um, we're, we have been able to fit everybody in for one service and practice social distancing, but as you can see, it's kind of touch and go, so there may come a time when we have to do two services, which means we might change the times a little bit, and basically it would be broken up alphabetically. But we haven't had to do that yet, so that's a blessing. But today's a special day, I think, for us because we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We get to dig into God's Word. We get to praise Him uh, with song. And on Communion Sundays, I'm doing, I've been doing a series for a couple years now that I've simply called a God Tunes. And that has us in the book of Psalms. And if you will, the Psalms are God's greatest hits. I mean, they're inspired by God. These are the songs that God wanted His children to read generation after generation, meditate upon. And so we've been looking at the Psalms. And in particular, recently, we've been looking at Psalm 145. There are three different, well, there's two themes in this psalm. One has to do with the extensive love of God, and the other has to do with passing on the faith from generation to generation. And last Sunday, we had an opportunity to look at what that entails, and also to see it really at work in our own congregation, as we see our young ones raised in the faith. From the, olders passing, the older generations passing down the truth and living it out, and we get to the joy of watching our young ones come up and give their lives, in most cases, in many cases, give their lives to Christ and begin to already serve Him. We have many of our youth are already serving the Lord in different capacities. So that is a great encouragement to us. But Psalm 145 has a, a, a real deep, takes a real deep look, I think, at God's love. We don't, it's all throughout Scripture, but you've got to kind of sometimes catch it in there. So we're going to be back in the theme about God's extensive love this morning. And we already looked at the first part of this in last Communion Sunday, and that is God's extensive love as seen in what is called common grace. 
Now, grace is unmerited favor. And so what that means is that even those that aren't saved, even those that don't love God, and go so far as to say those that have a wicked heart or a rebellious heart, maybe atheists or people, not just agnostics, but atheists, people that don't have any affection for God or may even hate Him or persecute the church, they also receive God's common grace. They receive God's love. In that, God reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous. So this is a beautiful day out here. And it's not just believers that get to enjoy it because we know who is in charge of the weather as well as all operations of the world, but everybody in the world gets to enjoy the good things. God even, because we're all created in the image of God, He equips people. He, he gifts people with certain talents. So it's not that Christians are better than everybody else in the world at things because they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but in God's common grace, He gifts other people with wonderful talents and intelligence and inventions and so forth to bless the common good. Do they deserve it? No. Grace is unmerited. But it's God's common grace. And the ultimate goal, he even says in Scripture, the ultimate goal of why he is so loving and kind and gracious to the undeserving is the hopes that it would lead people to repentance. That we would see... Uh, the goodness that comes our way and realize we don't deserve it and that it would lead us to repentance. Uh, one, of this, one of the ways this actually worked in my life is, you know, I was pretty much a rebel growing up and I thought I, I knew God. I thought I was saved through the church, but I, I wasn't. And, um, but I remember being in, in an automobile accident, actually a few, because I thought I could drink and drive at the same time. And for whatever reason, I just couldn't get that combination down. So, um, and I speak of it as lightly, but it's not a light thing because I endangered my life and I endangered the lives of others. But I walked away from a few of these accidents and you look at the vehicle and you, and you realize, believer or no believer, common sense, I have no right to be alive right now. I should not be walking out of this vehicle. And it gets you to thinking. There must be somebody out there. There must be something out there or somebody looking out for me because this does not compute. And when we experience the goodness of God, or maybe you don't know Christ this morning, but God is at work in your life. He's pursuing you. He's just loving on you with the hope that you would realize His deep love and care for you and reciprocate. And out of gratitude, realize that He really has your best interest at heart. And He wants you to walk in love and joy and enjoy the grace of God. So there's a reason behind it. It's not just a, a mushy kind of love that has no end in purpose. So we've seen how extensive God's love is in that sense. It just is not withheld from anybody um, unless they... Well, that's another... Passage. But anyway, it's not withheld from anybody. So let's look at Psalm 145 and frame our idea about love in general and God's love with the very words of God. I'm going to read verses 8 through 21. 
starts out talking about common grace. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and that means all, everybody, all of humanity. And His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So you see how the list of God's extensive love on all of humanity goes. It's just, it's endless how good he is to his creatures. Common grace. Then we see, um, there's a little shift in here where we see that common grace turns into saving grace. He's also addressing believers, those that call on his name. But let me just ask a question before I go any farther, and that is, when you hear the words, God loves you, and we certainly hear that a lot these days, God loves you, God loves you, what comes to your mind? What does that even mean? What does it mean to you? Or what does God mean when he says, I love you? And I would venture to say that it's not quite as simplistic as what we often make it. And it's certainly this idea of love and its depths is not as simplistic as what our culture teaches us. And so when I talk about the word culture, you have to know that if this is what the culture thinks about certain things, it is seeping in to even believers um, you know, as a parent, I was amazed, as, as vigilant as Lisa and I were at trying to spare our children from cultural despair. They picked it up. Where'd you hear that? How do you know the words to that song? We don't play that stuff in our house. We don't, we don't watch these movies or TV channels. and it, It's out there. Uh, the Bible calls it maybe the spirit of the world. It just has a way to seep in. I'm not saying it, it doesn't, it's not effective to try to resist, but it has a way. So when we think about God loves you or you tell somebody on the street, God loves you. What comes to their mind? What does that even mean? Well, it's not a secret that our culture has now defined love all for, for all intents and purposes as mostly just a feeling. And a few weeks ago, we looked at a very popular love song in the 80s by Aereo Speedwagon. Um, Can't fight this feeling anymore. What? Huh? Aereo, yeah. Yeah, well, that's another. Let me just tell that little story. 
So when you're a teenager and you love something and you hear, it sounded like on the radio when they, they uh, described what band was playing this, I was hearing REO, REO Speedwagon. I didn't even realize until I looked into this that it's actually just three letters, R and E and O. But I would call it REO. So I keep getting corrected on that because I thought it was four letters, REO Speedwagon. Anyway, that's how deep I thought in that day. And the whole idea is you don't think, you just take it all in, right? So anyway, we looked at this song, we looked at the lyrics. It's a great, powerful uh, song. It, it elicits the emotions, but the word love is never in there. It just describes the emotion of love. And everybody knows exactly what he's talking about, even though he hasn't defined the word, because he just describes all these different feelings. And so we've kind of pushed the, the, this huge concept of love into a little simplistic corner. And, and what that does when we apply it to scriptures, it really cuts God off at the knees. Because God's love is much deeper than that. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 13, we briefly looked at it. You, you, it's the greatest love chapter in the world, is what people say. And you'll be hard-pressed to find emo- emotion here. Love defined as an emotion. It's, it's action. It's what people not just think but do. It's not fluffy goosebumps and a mushy heart. And it also says in Corinthians that love endures to the end. And so if something, we know that for something to last that long, it's got to be really, really durable. I mean, there's got to be incredible substance to it. It has to be more than, than, than the mush and the good feelings and, and the goosebumps, though that's a part of it. And so I think that we'll find that love is more complex and we need to understand the extent of God's love. First of all, because he says he loves us and we want to understand it, what he, say, what he means by that. But also as believers, we're to be like him. We're to love like God loves, to understand Love, as taught in Holy Scripture. So in this psalm, in verses 8 through 17, for the most part, we see God's common grace, and then we see a shift coming. We talked a little bit about this already in 18 through 20. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him, and He hears the cry and saves them. So now he's talking about believers. And when the scripture says, those who call upon the name of the Lord, it's talking about somebody who is trusting in God. They're realizing, yes, you love me. Uh, you're, You're my savior and I need to be saved. I believe what you say and I am actively trusting, working hard to trust you and to obey you. Uh, to fellowship you, to learn to fear you, to, to speak to you, to pray to you, and to cry out to you. So you're throwing your life and you're building your life on God. That's what it means to call out or call on the name of the Lord. And then there's this other little shift that takes place in this psalm. In verse 20. <clears throat> and the Lord says, or the psalmist says, The Lord preserves all who love Him. But all the wicked, he will destroy. Now, things just got complicated with that statement. Things got complicated because 
verse after verse, God has expressed His love and His mercy in tangible ways, giving people the desires of our heart, rescuing them when they call out for help. Very loving acts. But then He says, the wicked He will destroy. And immediately it sounds contradictory. Wait a minute. Didn't you just say that you love me? And you even pour love upon me that's undeserved. And now the same God says that you're going to destroy me. So you love the wicked, but you're going to destroy the wicked. Your heart is filled with love. And yet your heart is filled with wrath upon the same group of people. And we scratch our heads and we wrestle with this. And we think, how can that be true? How can you pour your love upon someone, but yet also in your heart is judgment upon that same person. And both are fierce, a fierce love and a fierce judgment. And I know many people or modern people or people that aren't familiar with Scripture would say that just can't be true. Both cannot be true. It has to be one or another. And if you're going to talk about God's love, then you've got to leave the judgment stuff out or I don't want to hear it. If you're going to tell me God loves me and, and wants me to be saved and, and have Christ in my heart, then you, you can't tell me at the same time, but yet he wants to, he's going to destroy you and indeed actually his wrath is upon you right now. Because when you talk, that sounds like hate. That's hate speech. And that doesn't mix. That doesn't compute. And yet... It's very evident throughout all the scriptures. Let me just give you a few examples of how God thinks, how God acts, and his nature responds. So in, let's start with probably one of the most popular verses in scripture, John 3.16. I'm sure all of you could quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So that's John 3.16. And the world, the um, word there actually, for world, it, it's the whole thing. It's everything that we see. It's not just an aspect of it. It's the cosmos as we know it. So it includes the righteous and the wicked. It includes the whole broken down system. It includes the fallenness, the, the, the world that's under the curse. God is saying, I, I love it all. I love it all. Matter of fact, I love it so much that I gave my only son as a gift in love and mercy to give you away out of that brokenness. That's how much I love you. John 3.16. Skip just down to uh, two verses to verse 18. And this is still the mind of God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you have God expressing His love to even lost humanity, but also sharing this truth or revealing this truth that His wrath is on lost humanity. In fact, you're already condemned. It's not like waiting to happen. To not believe in Christ is to be condemned. And to be condemned by God is to be under His wrath. So, He, he loves fiercely to His 
full extent, but the wrath and the condemnation to its full extent is also on this same group of people. So that's New Testament. Let's look at God's heart in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 33.11. You know the prophets, they're always they're God's instruments and they're crying out to the people the word of God. So in Ezekiel 33.11, he says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for you will die, O house of Israel. So he he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He understands what the outcome will be, how terrible it is, and he wants them to turn back. Why? Because they will die. They will die in their sin if they don't turn back. I love you. Don't die. Don't do it. Turn back. But wait a minute. What's going to happen to them? What does he mean by, or you will surely die, O house of Israel? Who's going to execute the death? Whose death sentence is upon them? He's, He's ushered a death sentence, right? You're going to die if you don't turn back. Well, who's going to do the killing, so to speak? God is. He's the judge. He's judging them for their deeds. He's judging them for not turning away from their wickedness. And so we have God's heart coming out here. And you see both aspects and they're not under contradiction. They're not contradictory. You see that he says, I take no pleasure in this because I truly do love you. But if you do not turn back, you will face my wrath. And that's the same person. There's not a contradiction in the heart. And it's because God's wrath is good and right, and righteous, and it is an aspect of his extensive love. You see, love is more complicated in Scripture than it is in our culture. But our culture's idea of love does not hold up. It's not enduring. So the perfect nature of God. We have his perfect love and his perfect judgment going together. So let's just... Get a little more practical here. Let me give you an illustration. You know, I'm kind of hesitant to do this because it's not the perfect illustration, but this can this is deep. So I just want to try to to bring it down to earth a little bit in real life because it happens in our own lives, and we're created in the image of God. It's not as foreign as we might think. So let's just say you are the father of a daughter, and your daughter, you have been watching her, and she's just more and more getting closer to the edge of the deep end. You know, first she starts hanging out with the wrong people and you see the consequences of that. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. The next thing you know, she's sleeping around. She just seems to have lost it. She seems to be in some kind of stupor or daze and you love her and you're watching this happen. She's hanging around with the wrong crowd. She's sleeping around and now there's drugs in her life and not just light stuff. It's, it's, it's become a, a habit. 
And she's apathetic and she just doesn't see. It's like you just can't connect no matter how hard you try. And then that turns into stealing and lying and disrespecting. And as hard as you try to, to be gracious and merciful and understanding, she just none of it seems to work. And so as a father, you what do you do? I mean, you see your child in this incredibly destructive lifestyle. These are, these are not harmless activities. These are things that alter your life or end your life. And then if that wasn't as if that wasn't bad enough, her little sister sees her big sister's rebellion and thinks it looks cool. And so now she's starting to to show signs of rebellion as well. What do you do? Well, as much as you may try not to, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to be mad. You're going to be really angry. And you're going to be angry because you're going to see the person that you love so dearly, whose lives are intertwined, living a destructive lifestyle, destroying relationships, but not just relationships with you and your family members, but destroying her herself. So you're angry and you're mad, but why? Not just because of the way it affects you, not just because it breaks your heart, but because you love her, because you care for her. And because of that love and that care, you do not want to see her go down this path. Now, if you, could, if you had no affection and no care, and somebody came to you and said, hey, hey, your daughter's sleeping around, she's taking drugs, and she's laying in the alley somewhere. Ah, she'll be all right. But the reason that it incites a deep concern and anger is because you love her so much. So it's hitting you in the heart. See, that anger, the anger can turn to wrath or judgment. So what do you do? You're trying your best to turn her. And so you say, okay, I'm taking your phone. I'm taking your money because you're spending it on drugs. You're coming up, trying to come up with everything. There's curfews. You've got to be home. By this time, you're trying to employ the law and come down hard. Not because you want to watch her sad and sit in a room. Because you love her. You want what's best for her. It's care. But all of these removed privileges and so forth uh, do not work. She's hurting herself. It's getting to the point where she's hurting others. She's destructing, destructive, risking the lives of others. So out of your anger, but an anger that is stemmed from concern, you have to do something. So now this is just an illustration, but so then the father, out of desperation, wanting to save his child, calls the police. Calls the police. In an effort to intervene. Now what is that? Is that hate or is that love? Because our culture's not so sure about it. Now, the, the older generations totally will get this. They'll say, of course it's love. Discipline is love. It's all in Scripture. And even the culture used to understand this. Even unbelievers understood this. It's how you can't let just people do what you want. But the cultural thinking now is that the, the epitome of human nature is 
autonomy, complete autonomy. You see it in our culture. That's why decisions are being made to let people do things that you would never dream would be true. And it's happening right under our, our, our eyes, our noses, and it's this worldview understanding of it's the epitome of humanity. And if anybody else is telling me what to do, then I'm not free. And total freedom comes from total autonomy. And we're trying to construct this culture that works. Of course, it's not going to work because it's not real life. And so now, like the, the whole marriage idea and concept of marriage between a husband and wife, that shot. But it's not going to stop there with same-sex marriage. You have to know that it's not going to stop there. There's already talk about polyamory. There's already talk about pedophilia, legalizing this. Why? Because people have deep feelings. They want to do it. And you're oppressing me if you're holding me back. Our culture used to get this, but now we're all confused about what love is and what hate is. And we, many people, would call that father a hateful, spiteful father. Because now you have a sad girl maybe sitting up in a room crying or sitting in a prison cell crying and that's just so mean. But is it? You want to turn her back to health. You want her to be whole. It's not hate, it's serving justice. It's caring. It's doing the right thing. The uncaring thing is to just let people go and destroy themselves and harm themselves. That's uncaring, that's unloving. It's just an illustration. You could, instead of turning her into the police, you could have sent her to Aunt Sterney's house and Aunt Sterney will set her straight. Maybe that would be another option. Love is not complete autonomy. So God is judging them for not turning. And because they're not turning, what they're doing is they are destroying good things. They're living destructive lifestyles themselves, but they're also destroying other people's good, right? When somebody sins against you or harms you or steals something from you or slanders you, they are stealing goodness from you. They're making your life, your lives miserable. Well, God is pure. God is just. God is loving. So he doesn't, he's not going to let that just continue on and on and on. It's an unloving thing to do. So, if we are to love God, what does it really look like? If we're thinking about the extent of God love, God's love and defining love. How can I know if I'm really loving God? It's not just a feeling. There's nothing wrong with feelings and emotions. We should feel God, absolutely. But how does the Scripture define love? When John 14, 21, Jesus tells His disciples, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So according to God, the way that we show love is through our obedience. And then that was in John 14, John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So Jesus is saying the way I show my Father love is through my obedience. So I, I make personal sacrifices. I make conscious decisions to love Him through my obedience. And that's how you are to love God. 
love me through your obedience. You say, well, that's just great. That's just great. So it all boils down to I just have to submit and obey. That's so starchy. It's so dry. What a, what, what? There's no vibrancy in that relationship. There's got to be more to it than that. And there is. It's not just some rote robotic obedience where you wake up and say, okay, God, I'll obey you again today. In the one verse later from 1510, John 1511. These things I have spoken to you all about this talk about obedience and love and so forth, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So it turns out that all this potentially starchy stuff about just obedience is God's concern for my joy. It's not just all I want is your obedience. What I really want is your joy. And the way I get your joy and the way that you receive joy and live a joyful life is through your obedience to me. Now, how can that work? Of course, we have our sinful nature that resists God's ways. We have, to, we have to overcome that through the power of the Spirit. But the reason in the big picture that this makes sense is because every human being was created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We were created for that purpose. But God's a holy God, God a pure God. There is a right and wrong. And so the way that we can fulfill that is through our obedience to his commands because every command is perfectly right perfectly good perfectly just and it's for our own good sin tries to convince us otherwise just like in the garden uh, god didn't say that he couldn't have said that because look look at the effects if you don't get to eat this fruit man you're really missing out so tr- sin argues with god's truth But what Jesus is saying, the Son of God is coming to the earth and He's saying, no, I'm all about your joy. But you can't can't get joy in the way that you're trying to get joy. You can't get joy in the world's ways. All these false opportunities and false options. The way you get, the closest thing you're going to get to it, and it will be fulfilled in heaven, by the way. But the closest you're going to get to it is by meditating on my word, understanding human nature, understanding the nature of God, And you will see that obeying me is what's best. Now, this isn't a surface love. This isn't just a good feeling. This is the God is after the deep down in your heart, soul shattering joy that only comes from a true and deep understanding of loving God. And all your joy sensors go off. I don't know about you, but a lot of times with me, all my joy sensors are going off because it dawns on me, I just obeyed the Lord. I just made a conscious choice. And man, did that feel good. It felt good to have a victory for a change. Because that's what I want to do. So God says, I want you to obey me because I want your joy. Not just surface stuff, but your greatest joy. Joy. And here's what I would call America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, says. Now, this is kind of a paraphrase because it's a little technical, but the essence of loving someone is the pleasure of giving them pleasure, the happiness that comes to you when you see yourself making them happy. So, Jesus is saying, I want your greatest joy. 
Because that's how you will experience it personally. But guess what happens? When I see you loving me and loving life and getting it the way we're supposed to get, the way we're created to get it, it brings me tremendous pleasure. It brings me a deep joy to see you living in joy. So now, love, biblical love is complex. Look how intertwined it is. Look at all the different dynamics that are going on. So what do you hear when God says, I love you? Or God loves you? This is deep stuff here. I trust that it's sinking into our hearts. So obedience, the greatest love, the greatest pleasure comes from watching the person you love fully enjoy life as it is meant to be lived. If you're a parent, you'll get this. Or if you've ever felt like you've been in love, you'll get this to some extent because you love when the person you love is experiencing tremendous joy in life. Jonathan Edwards goes on to say, What can be more properly called love to any being or anything than to place one's happiness in that thing, causing the good of another now to be your good? So our good and our joy is God's good and God's joy. J.I. Packer puts it like this, God's love involves his identifying himself with our welfare. So that's how intertwined God is with us. And yet, our culture just shortchanges love. And it, it, it turns it into surface good feelings. And that's it. That's as deep as it ever goes. So let's bring this illustration or bring this concept uh, down a little bit. You know, as we think about the culture's concept of love, basically, I have needs and you're supposed to fill my needs. You're supposed to make me feel good. You're supposed to affirm me. I want to surround myself with as many people to make myself feel good, to encourage me, to love me, to complete me. Because otherwise I won't feel good about myself. It's a self-centered type of love. And the Bible says, I want you to be the good that you need. I want you to be the good that others need. The biblical love is a giving love. So let's just think about this in terms of, say, family relationships. So if you want to bring joy to your children, we'll go back to the parent thing, and you gather your kids around and you say, what will make you the happiest? I want you to be joyful tonight. What will make you the happiest? And probably some, one of the kids is going to say, well, I just want to eat candy and any candy I want. Because I have a lot and you haven't been letting me eat it. I want to eat candy. Okay, kids. Eat all the candy you want tonight because I want you to be smiling and happy and filled with joy so they get to eat all the candy that they want. What else? I want you to be really happy tonight. What else do you want from me? How can I make you happy? Well, no more homework. No more school. No more homework. It's too hard. I don't like pushing myself. I don't like, I don't like, I don't do well with tests. Kids, no more school. No more homework. Yay, Dad, you're the best. We're so happy. We can't believe I've never been this happy in my, in my entire life. This is great. Life is so good. How long is that going to last? 
It's a surface joy. It's a surface happiness. But in real life, it doesn't work. Why? Because you're going to be taken to the doctors or the dentist or somewhere. Or you're going to be up with them all night, throwing up or whatever. And then, you know, what happens? They get a little bit older. It's time for them to get their license. They can't pass the test because they don't know how to study. They don't know how to learn. They can't drive. They can't read signs. They can't get a job. Now, is that really loving and caring for them? Will they be joyful children? No, they're going to be miserable. And we live in this culture that offers, offers all this surface stuff. Man, I can make you happy. Take this. Buy this. Do this. Believe that. Doesn't it feel good? Yeah, it does. But as believers, we need to look a little farther down the road and say, wait a minute, is that joy? Is that the fullness? Is that the wholeness of life that God had in store for me? Because that's what God wants. And He's not going to settle for anything less. So are we loving like God loves? Let me give you just a couple examples and then we'll close. Timothy Keller applies this sacrificial, deep love joyful understanding of love uh, to a marriage. He says, when we start our marriages, we actually, uh, we start more on the feelings basis, the selfish basis. Wow, you look great. I'm interested in you. You make my body feel tingly. I think I'm going to pursue this kind of thing. And you, and you get together. That's part of it. You know, that's the beginnings of it. There's attraction or whatever. And so you, you realize what that person's doing to you. It's make, he or she is making you feel good and seeing. So what happens is, now let me give, so he says, um, we think this other person can meet our needs. Now what happens is, let me give you a 20-year scenario. Over 20 years, the other person starts to have a bad patch. It's not giving you what you want. So you, apparently you got married. <clears throat> And you start to say, hmm, uh, she's not being the wife that she used to be. And I, I don't need to be the husband I used to be. I mean, it's only fair. So you think she started it. She thinks you started it. And she's out there thinking, hmm, he's not being the husband that he ought to be. Well, why should I go out of my way to do this or that? And slowly what you do is because this person's not meeting your needs, you pull back. Meanwhile, with your children, you're, satisfied, you're sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing and you're giving and giving. And over a 20-year period, at the end of 20 years, no matter how wayward, no matter how foolish your children were or are, you're ready to go to the mat for them. And at the end of those same 20 years... There's no love left in the marriage, you say. And how did that happen? Because you were probably practicing fitfully and imperfectly God's definition of love with your kids and you weren't doing it with your spouse. C.S. Lewis says in the Problem of Pain book that he wrote, when you love somebody the way God does, which is the only way to do it, you limit yourself. When you tie yourself to someone emotionally so you can't be happy unless they're flourishing, it hurts. It's difficult. It's not easy. You limit yourself. But the reason you should do it is because it makes you godlike. 
The reason you should do it is in the end, that's the, the nature of reality because that's how God is. And in the long run, that's the way to be happy. In the short run, it will be pain. But the main reason to do it is because God has done that for you. God has voluntarily bound up His happiness with our joy. It's been One mother once said, a parent is as happy as their unhappiest child. A parent can only be as happy as their unhappiest child. Now, if you're a parent, you'll get it right away. Because if there's a child out there that's suffering in some kind of way, you're there with them. It's intertwined because you care so much for them and you love them so much. And it affects your life. Well, that's how God is with us. That's how extensive His love is. And He chooses to come into our world. He chooses to pursue us. He chooses to love us and intertwine His heart with us and he wants us to experience the fullness of joy. And that's a more of a rounded biblical definition of God. And Piper says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now you know why. It's true. So let's satisfy ourselves in our great God as we obediently and joyfully sing His praise, and participate in the Lord's Supper with each other. May God bless the preaching of His Word.